Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. When you're at that point of like, you're at death's door, you can't just then manifest this calmness maybe or this this idea that you know oh we're all mortal and we're all going to die and i'm trying to accept it and having done the work whether it's through reading or conversations or meditation over the years that may take years or even decades to kind of arrive at this kind of acceptance of it and 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 being okay truly okay with it Aren't you more than how much you weigh and what you eat? In the last few months on the podcast, we've considered some questions, such as, how do you care for others? How do you contribute to your community? How do you realize your potential? How do you show love? How do you stay curious? How do you declutter your environment? These are just a few ways that we discovered how to thrive as a whole person with a whole life. And now, as we wrap up the year, up next is spiritual health. We are going to reflect upon mortality with journalist Thomas Gaudio. Find purpose with author and teacher Oslem Ozkan. Cultivate hope with author Jewel Kuchera and business coach and writer Linda McLaughlin. And last but not least, practice altruism with educator and author David Reynolds. Trigger warning. If you are thinking about suicide or you know someone who is, please get help at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And now, let's talk about Reflecting Upon Mortality with Thomas Gaudio. What has given you the curiosity and the courage to explore the subject of death? Hmm. Curiosity and courage. Well, I'll start with curiosity. I think it's an it's an eight innate in all of us, honestly. I think all people are innately curious about this topic. You know, I, I, like all of us, I've had various experiences over the years with death and dying, with my own mortality, that are just kind of like humming in the background, right? Always. What was really a turning point, like a trigger, I would say, is reading the death of Ivan Ilyich by, by Tolstoy. Uh, which I just kind of serendipitously plucked off a, sh- a bookshelf one day. And that was a profound moment in my life. That was a changing point, I would say. That was a, a catalyst for me in a lot of ways because that book opened my eyes to my own mortality and opened my eyes to the fact that we don't talk about it. In, you know, um, we do in certain ways, but not in a very open, consistent, um, non-judgmental, proactive way, I would say, in our culture. And this is back in 2010, towards the end of 2010, 2010. 
right? And then the subsequent year, I ended up going to graduate journalism school, and I chose to explore this topic because of uh, having just read that book and um, had a great teacher, you know, you know, in, in the way that great teachers can open up doors for you and open up, you know, your perspective on things. So we had this functioning newsroom in downtown Chicago, and we were meant to create, you know, cover a beat, you know, a, like a theme or topic area. And we had a, a, an online publication and we were meant to create news and then potentially even, you know, link up with other local news sources if they wanted to pick up our stories. But we we're actually acting as if we were a newsroom. So I had already worked at a newspaper prior to that. I worked at a business newspaper and I had covered health and technology and health uh, startup companies and uh, pharmaceuticals, et cetera. So I got a taste of it and I got a flavor for it. And I wanted to do something more like in the city environment, like they call it urban reporting. I was going for a long drive and in, in the way only a long drive can kind of like, or not the only way, but in the way that sometimes a long drive can kind of free up your subconscious. I ended up just thinking on what I, what I really wanted to do with this class because it felt like a really amazing opportunity. And I guess having just read the death of Ivan Ilyich a few months prior to that, you know, the death and dying just bubbled to the surface. And I'm like, yeah, why aren't we talking about this more, mm-hmm. more in our culture? Mm-hmm. And can I explore this as a, as a journalist potentially? Mm-hmm. And so I had, you know, he had given us a syllabus and I already had an idea of like what, what all the different types of stories were. And it just kind of the floodgates open. Like I just started thinking like, I can go, Oh, I can do this, this kind of story potentially. I can go that kind of story. Or like hey, all these questions came up. Like what about this? And what about that? How does that work? And I just started like kind of mentally slotting all these like potential ideas in the, you know, within the syllabus. And then by the time I was done with that drive, it was like a long drive. It was like a 10 hour drive or something. And then I, I pitched him when we the class started again, but I pitched him with the idea. He's like, I love it. Run with it. Go for it. And I did. So I ran around Chicago like a crazy person, just like writing about all these weird topics, you know, and like writing stories for this class, ex- experiential class. So like I wrote about, there was a memorial service for the cadavers at, at the medical school at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. At Northwestern. Mm-hmm. So I wrote about that, covered that service. I wrote about, a donation, then I, that kind of led me to, okay, how does the donation process work for cadavers, for bodies? Ended up talking to someone at the Illinois Anatomical Gift Association, I believe is the name of the organization. Like I went to the actual warehouse where they stored the bodies. It kind of looked like Costco for cadavers in a way. It's like, <laughs> just like a warehouse with like shell, like big metallic orange shells in the body bag zipped up. And... I did a story about there's a group called Final Exit Network, which facilitates assisted deaths or like letting people who are terminally ill choose their own ending. And it was just an amazing experience. So I think that was like a really, those two things back to back 2010 and 2011 happening. That was a major experience and eye opening. Yeah, just sort of change in my life. Why wasn't fear something that stopped you? facing the idea of your own mortality and maybe questioning what could possibly happen, being afraid of that. I mean, I understand it might have been initial curiosity and you just kind of got going, but then you kept going with it and it grew into something even bigger where you were blogging and then you had a website and you were talking to more people on the streets. And I want to get into that a little bit later. So Mm -hmm. why is it that you weren't afraid? Why did you not let that stop you? 
I wouldn't say I wasn't afraid. Hmm. I mean, I, th- I think I acted despite the fear, and which is, you know, kind of going back to your, when you said courage, right? And that's like kind of a definition here about courage. It's like, it's like, it's not, not the lack of fear, it's acting in spite of fear. Okay. Yeah, I would say I think I still have fears around that I'm trying to grapple with, which is part of why I'm doing this project, right? Mm. Um, I'm trying to, mm. really trying to embrace my mortality at, okay. on a deep level, on a deep fundamental level. Hmm. Part of it's probably just my personality. I tend to go towards things that bother me or that trigger that kind of emotion. Like I went skydiving a couple of times in my life, for example, and that definitely you know, I wasn't like devoid of fear by any means around that. And like, it was very fearful, but I did it anyway. Or like confrontations or uncomfortable situations. I tend not to shy away from them. Just that's like a personality thing, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I don't like the idea of being fearful or being, or being something holding me back. So if if it becomes if I become aware of it, I want to understand it and I want to break it down and I want to, if not overcome it, at least come to terms with it or so, you know something along those lines. So you alluded to this before, or you didn't even allude to it. You talked about it earlier. Generally, our culture is not comfortable with discussing death until we absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? This is a huge question. We could spend the rest of our time and, and much, much longer talking about this. Okay, there, there's actually a, a few different ways to approach this. Number one is that that supposition which I agree with, may not be as accurate as many people think, I, because it is an assumption that in, in the circles I run in, and you were a doctor, like you, you are you still, I'm not sure, I don't mean to say were, if you still, are you still are a practicing doctor? I don't know how you. Well, I definitely, you, I just call it retired. I mean, I, okay. the diploma, they can't take it away from me, but I don't <laughs> <Right>. practice anymore. <laughs> okay. Right. So I think in that environment, especially, we see there's a lot of reluctance to talk about death and dying and the end of life. Um, on both sides of the equation, right, from, from, from patients and from, from doctors, doctors who, like, may view death as losing or as something that's um, in opposition to what their whole goal and what their whole purpose is. I think many patients don't want to give up. They want to stay alive if they're terminal, right, because it's a basic biological instinct to want to remain alive. Culturally, what I've come to understand is that there's a lot of different reasons for the cultural aspect in the U.S. and other Western countries, because like, in the circles I'm in, like let's say thanatology, which is the inter- interdisciplinary study of dying and death and grief, the assumption is that like the, in the U.S. And, and other Western countries, Europe, for example, we're not as open with it. We're not as good as in, engaging with it as like let's say Mexico, who celebrates the Dia de Muertos, or Tibetan Buddhists, who are very you know, Buddhists being very open towards towards death and dying. Other culture, other other cultures are perceived to be somewhat better. Maybe more of the older cultures and, and have been around for a long, longer time um, in other parts of the world. I think in order to actually say that definitively, you'd have to like do a cross-cultural survey like over time and actually kind of under, to understand how people actually truly engage with this topic. I think generally, yeah, people are not open towards it. And what I've come to understand in, 
in terms of like the, the U.S. and other Western cultures within the last 100 to 150 years is that there's been a shift away from, from death in our culture, having to do with these largely, and there's more to it than this, but maybe the two biggest factors being healthcare and death care. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, so like on the healthcare side, it's like large percentage of us die in hospitals, long-term care institutions. We don't die at home anymore. So there's a, a divorce from the, the experience of people dying or who are, or are around us. There's the, you know, stay alive at all costs idea, right? Yes. Um, literally, like, you know, cost being the monetary aspect and also the, the, the emotional, spiritual aspect, like stay mm. alive, right? And, and, mm. and die, like kind of alluded to earlier, doctors viewing this as like a failure if, if, if a patient dies. Mm. Pa- people being told that there is a chance you could survive, even if, even if your odds are like, if you look at this, the stats, let's say, and look at the actual odds, like your odds are probably very low, but there is a chance, right? And we have all this technology. So let's try chemo, let's try radiation therapy, let's try, the, oh, there's a new experimental drug that's being tried, we can try that. Not necessarily bad things, but it becomes like this idea of quantity of equality of life, right, in those moments. But then there's also the death care industry cropping up around the same time, the the idea of embalming, which has came came online basically like around with modern embalming anyway, and the, during the Civil War, in order to help transport soldiers, uh, dead soldiers back to their homes, mm. and then out of that arose the funeral care industry, so that we shifted again the the, the idea of caring for our dead, which we did in our homes, and we put them in some kind of wheelbarrow, some kind of car- you know carry them somehow to the cemetery, which is close by dig the grave ourselves and bury the person. And now we've outsourced that to the death care industry. So you're saying that there are these unseen repercussions of medicine, prolonging life, which is great. You know, people can live longer. You're not 40 anymore and you die uh, because you had appendicitis. And then because you don't have to care for your dead, your mom doesn't necessarily, or your dad doesn't necessarily die at home and you have to do the care there. You can outsource this to the funeral industry. So this is something that we can push out of our consciousness and avoid if we want to. Yes. It makes yeah. it easy it, to avoid the subject. It, it makes it very easy. Like, I mean, it, just, just the inherent system is built for us to not engage with it. And then if you do, want, if you do happen to engage with it or, or come across it, yeah, you, it's, it's, it makes it very easy for us to avoid it if we don't want to engage with it. And then the underlying subtext is that death is bad, dying is bad. We can avoid it. We can prolong life as, as much as possible. So right. we're subconsciously, we're subconsciously processing these messages. Yeah, I, I yes, I would say that 100%. You said uh, earlier, I forget how you phrased it, but yeah, the way I the way I phrase it is unintended consequences of mm. these, of the last, you know, all these advances in our society, and many of them for the good, as you said, but um, unintended consequences that we we've become divorced or or, or separate from this very natural and fundamental part of our lives and and but here's where it gets even more interesting so there's that perspective which implies if you take it a step further that prior to this period like let's say 18th century 1700s right and prior that we were it was all good we were all we were all good with death and that we had this great relationship with death 
Is that true? I don't know. Uh, that's, the, that's the assumption, underlying assumption. Now, what pokes a hole in that idea is this <laughs> fascinating area of social psychology called terror management theory. Terror management theory is, a, is really an interesting framework for thinking about death, death and fear and this all, everything we've been talking about. It was, it's based on the work of uh, Ernest Becker, who was a cross-disciplinary anthropologist in the 60s and 70s. He wrote a book called The Denial of Death in, in the, like, the mid-70s that came out and ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. Basically, the underlying idea is this, that humans as a species, we have a biological impulse to live, as all organisms do. Mm-hmm. But unlike any other organism, as far as we know, we have mortality awareness. So the, the, our biological impulse to survive is in direct conflict with our mortality awareness. And our mortality awareness derives from our ability to think symbolically and abstractly, which is again, as far as we know, is purely a human ability. Maybe you know chimps can, maybe dolphins can, maybe elephants and crows, like things that we think of as advanced animals who have some kind of modicum of intelligence as, as far as we define it. But we, as far as we know, we're the only ones who have the ability to think symbolically and abstractly, and we have um, a mortality awareness to, to contend with. On top of that, we have, there's this idea of needing self-esteem and meaning in our lives. Okay. And again, again it goes back to the idea of like that, that animals don't need self-esteem. As far as we can tell, animals don't need to find meaning in their lives. They just live in the moment. They live as they live to survive. So again, it's a separation of like what makes us different than animals. And we have this, this cognitive ability, this, this cognitive development. We have this mortality awareness. So these things are in direct conflict. So that has the ability or, or the, ca- the capability to cause crippling dread in us and fear. And that's the root of our fears as, as a species. Now, what we've done as a species, and this, this, this theory goes on to say, is that we've created culture, in order to combat that fear, we've created cultural worldviews, which are ways in which we give our lives meaning and give, give us self-esteem and create a sense of immortality. Uh, a way to overcome immortality, and that can be either symbolically or uh, literally. So, a symbolic immor- symbolic immortality would be having children who live on uh, when you die, uh, amassing wealth that you can pass on, creating artwork or you know music or writing that will live on. So, a legacy. Let some le- some a legacy of some form. Mm-hmm. Literal immortality is the idea of a soul. Or an, an eternal soul or eternal consciousness, reincarnation, right? All these ideas that, that are summarized in religion. So that over the eons of human evolution and development, that we've created these cultural worldviews as a way to manage our subconscious fear of death. And a lot of this is like, well, how would you, how would you, okay, it sounds great, but how would you know? And what they've done, these three psychologists, social, social psychologists who developed terror management theory out of this, uh, they've created experiments over the last 35 years to test these ideas and they found a lot of support for them so one of them is called the mortality salience hypothesis and it's like testing what happens 
when you're, the idea of your own mortality comes to the forefront of your consciousness. So, that, so they'll, they'll, they'll prime you, they'll prompt ideas either directly or indirectly. And then they, have, they, they conduct these experiments to see, to measure it somehow. So there is this one example of these judges who were, there was a set of judges, I think it was in Arizona, who were told to write about their, this one group was told to write about their deaths and one group was, didn't have to write about their death, like their own, the idea of their own mortality. And, and then they were given a case study about a prostitution case and, so, and, and then asked to assign uh, some kind of fine around how they would judge this case. So the interesting thing is that the judges who had been primed with the ideas of their own mortality beforehand assigned uh, a fine of $450 to the case. The judges who didn't, were not primed with ideas of their own mortality assigned a fine of $50. The idea being that because they were primed, the idea of their own mortality is brought to their, the front of their consciousness, they, it, they clinged tighter to their worldview. The underlying assumption is that their worldview is that breaking the law is wrong and that lawbreakers should face penalties. Hmm. So you, you actually defend your worldview more when you're confronted with ideas of your own mortality. So, and then you take that a step further and what this theory says is that that's actually at the root of a lot of our divisiveness as people, that we have conflicting worldviews that are meant to protect us from the terror of our own, our own mortality. It's, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting theory that I've like been digging into this year. So that's, that's like another potential <laughs> reason why we're really bad at this. <laughs> This is by no means judgmental because I really wouldn't know what I would do in this situation. But I'm being honest when I say that I used to sit in these interdepartmental conferences on a regular basis when I was practicing pathology. So it would include surgeons and radiologists and internists and so just across different disciplines to talk about specific cases and something that always intrigued me was the presentations by the oncologists, specifically the, and no form of cancer is good. Okay. That's not what I'm going to say, but some are more aggressive than others and have a really terrible prognosis versus other types of cancer. Okay. So at any rate, one of the things that would bother me when I'd be sitting in those conferences was the patient who was late stage, stage four ovarian cancer or pancreatic or uh, renal cell, you know, these really aggressive cancers. And these oncologists were giving us this data about survival and efficacy of of these types of medicines. And in the back of my mind, I knew we're just saying in a very sterile way, the patient received this chemotherapy, but we all knew that they were experiencing terrible side effects and things from these medications and being on chemo and being on radiation and all that. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered, what would encourage a patient to 
experience even more agony and maybe prolonging life for just three more months, Mm -hmm. five more months, but in pain, it's not quality at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't know what I would do in that situation, but I, I wondered were you volunteering to be a guinea pig to say, okay, this treatment may help doctors study for the benefit of someone else down the line? Or was it a mixture of that and maybe fear and not wanting to let go and maybe not wanting to let go of family or maybe the family doesn't want you to let go? I know I'm asking a lot of terrible, hard questions, but I know that <laughs> you you have had so much experience actually talking to people and learning about this subject, what have you learned in terms of kind of the questions that I'm asking? I actually haven't spoken with a lot of terminal patients or, or doctors in that situation. It's, it's, on, my, uh, it's on my list of pe- pe- talking to types of different types of people, you know, so I can't speak to that necessarily directly, right? I, never having faced my own like I think about this conceptually, right? And it's mm-hmm. something that we we all face. We all have this built-in expiration, right? We're all going. We're all, we all we all will die at some point, and we have awareness of that. I'm at a point where I'm actively trying to accept it and and and, and embrace it. But I still have not been really ever threatened. My life has never been threatened in a in a real, direct, sustained way. Sure. So. I cannot imagine what that mentality is like. Mm. Even even for someone like me, as if I'm working towards it, and like even if you're some enlightened Buddhist monk who has accepted it, when you're actually facing, staring down the barrel of death in a very real, direct way, maybe everything goes out the window, and you're just scared. Mm. There's probably a mix of emotions, probably a mix of different desires, to maybe yeah not burden your family or the fact that you want to stay alive. You want, even if it's just for another Mm -hmm. day or yeah, there's the idea of the altruistic aspect of like, yeah, I want to contribute to the greater good and and the the study of medicine and health for experimental medicine, maybe. Right. So I think that is a very tricky area. And like kind of what you were, you were implying is like, I would never say to someone you shouldn't try Mm -hmm. or not try. Mm -hmm. I would say do whatever you're comfortable with. But Mm -hmm. I think when you're at that point, and I've heard there's a doctor, Leslie Blackhall. She's a head of palliative medicine down at the University of Virginia. She's taught a class that I, uh, I took this thanatology course at the New York Open Center. And she speaks about this idea in terms of like doing the work that I'm trying to do now and I'm trying to get others to do and that, that we're, I'm talking about. It's like when you're at that point of like you're at death's door, you can't just then manifest this calmness maybe or this uh, this idea that you know oh we're all mortal and we're all going to die and i'm trying to accept it and having done the work whether it's through reading or conversations or meditation over the years that may take years or even decades to kind of arrive at this kind of acceptance of it and 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 being okay truly okay with it i think at that point it's yeah so the idea is like try to get ahead of that and it's not like maybe maybe it's not too late for those people. I don't want to give those people lack of hope either, right? Because maybe you still can achieve some kind of level of acceptance of that in that in that moment if you're surrounded, if you're in the right environment, you have the right people, you're talking to the right people, and they're not trying to. I, I don't know. I don't know what those conversations look like in those moments with the doctor, with their nurse, with their family members, right? But I do know there was a study 
at NYU around, and this is another whole fascinating topic, you know, psychedelics and psilocybin mushrooms, psilocybin that being the active ingredient in, in psychedelic mushrooms. And a lot of these psychedelics now are being studied for their, for their benefits, which were, you know, they were being studied for in like the 40s, 50s, and 60s before there was this crackdown and they became, I think, what was it called, Schedule 1, where they weren't even eligible to be studied in medicinal, for medicinal purposes. And now there's been a resurgence in the last 10, 15 years psilocybin being one of them and they showed an amazing result with psilocybin with terminal patients and existential dread and like helping them to accept their their impending death and and reduce their fears and anxieties around that so it's not that it's hopeless if you've got that moment haven't done the work but it's, i think a better idea to i think that's one of the one of the purposes of my project and, and for, for me doing this is to help me prepare because as, as conceptual and, and abstracted as, as it is right now it's it's going to happen to me one day so I, I would like to be as prepared as possible so are you encouraging people through your work to not only prepare for the inevitable maybe philosophically emotionally mentally but also practically your desires and preparation for the inevitable and what you would want to happen Yes, absolutely. I think that's an aspect of it for me. I'm much more interested in, I would say, the philosophical, the scientific, the cultural aspects of it. But absolutely, as, as a matter of you know, being comprehensive and also just the, the benefits of it for myself and for others. Yes, like, I mean, that's something I've talked about, I've, I've written about. And, when I, and sometimes when I'm interviewing people, you know, I'll ask them, do they, have they made their end of life plans? Have you, mm. do, you have a, do you have a living will? Do you mm -hmm. have a healthcare proxy? Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, we, I mean, it goes back to the root of the project, which is mm. like the idea that like, we never, you never know. You know, you think you have time, mm -hmm. right? But the truth of the matter is that you don't know. Again, it's not being fearful or not being morbid, yeah, morbid, or <laughs> like right, or like, you know, saying the sky is falling. But like, yes, the fact is that like that any moment it could happen, right? So like, and, and we we're good at. So forgetting that we're good at avoiding that idea we're good mm. at like at suppressing that idea mm. and there's a probably an evolutionary benefit to doing so but it, it, it does benefit us i think to think in those terms and at least do some of that work and it is hard to sit down and you know assign a healthcare proxy and think of your, your living will and write down what you would want to do in a situation where you cannot communicate your wishes yeah and the fact is a lot of these laws and a lot of these um, regulations, specifically a healthcare proxy, I think is is something that's a legally binding, you know, mechanism in most states, or if not all states. But a lot of these cases, that, in terms of what I've learned, how they arose, were around younger people who ended up in comas, you know, who ended up incapacitated, mm -hmm. you know, from an accident or an overdose or something along those lines. Or like a there was one, there was that Terry Schiavo back in the early '90s, but a lot of these situations were like people in their 20s and 30s who ended up incapacitated and didn't have these conversations. And then, the, you know, their spouse is at odds with their parents. Spouse says, no, she wanted to die. Like she wouldn't, she, I knew she wouldn't want to be in this state. And the parents are saying, this is our daughter. We love her. Like we're going to do everything we can to yeah. keep her alive. Right. So you have yeah. this inherent conflict there. Yeah. So like articulating those things is always a good idea, no matter what your age, no matter what your health condition. Absolutely.
you've walked out onto the streets of New York and randomly walked up to strangers and say, hey, what do you think about death? Or would you like to talk to me about it? Can you tell me how that's been received? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a hell of a lot of fun. If you're, if you're looking at something to, for something fun to do one day and you're bored, just go out to people, strangers on the street, and ask them what they think about their own mortality. Right? It's, it's because you catch people in a state where they haven't had time to really think about it. Like when I interview people on the podcast or if I'm doing a sit-down interview with them, I've done sit-down interviews before. Like people are, I mean, anybody who says yes is selecting in, so therefore they're probably going to be more, more likely to sure. talk about it, right? Sure. But when you, when you talk to me, if you someone on the street, they haven't had time to prepare. And so they, that's really nice uh, because you just have, I think, a little bit more of an honest, a little more, more of a off-the-cuff conversation and their guard is a little bit down. If you can establish that rapport with them and let them know it's safe to talk to you and like you're genuinely interested in their responses and that you know you're you're going to treat them with respect and consideration, then people tend to open up. You know, I mean, I've had amazingly deep conversations with someone I just met, you know, a few minutes ago. Everyone is curious about it. Everyone has some desire to talk about it, oh. but we need permission. Yes, sometimes. we need. A mechanism by which to have these conversations. There are people who there's two types of people. I I don't really generally like that that kind of like um, framework. Black like, and white people, thinking. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. there, there are two types of people in the world. But <laughs> I, I've I've come, I, I've seen this pretty starkly. And there is some variation. There is some like in middle ground here. But the one kind of person generally is like, get the hell away from me. They are repulsed by me. Mm, mm. They're polite, but they're polite. Mm-hmm. And then the other person who says yes, I have yet to experience someone who says yes, and then I have a terrible conversation. Hmm. It's, like, it's kind of like the floodgates open. What's one of your favorite stories? There was a woman who called herself Goddess Narcissa, who caught my attention because so generally when I'm trying to find someone, this is in Grand Central, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find someone who looks like they have time in their hands, right? Because I want to have a conversation that's going to last upwards of like at least 10, 15 minutes in that kind of environment. And so if you're rushing for a train, you're not a good, you know, sure. person that I want, you know, it's not a good candidate. The, she caught my attention for two reasons. The one, she was kind of fit that criteria of like just standing around, looked like she had time to kill. And, she had, and then she also had this kind of like bright blue hair. And she looked younger too. And I want to talk to younger people about this as well, because to the degree that we do talk about it, it is probably more discussed among older people. Mm -hmm. And she was just very open with me very quickly uh, about she, her her suicidal thoughts. She had, you know, she had been suicidal in her life. And I just appreciated that so much in having that kind of conversation because suicide is a whole other topic that is essentially like an epidemic in its own right in this country and elsewhere, and the suicide rates are rising. And I think suicidal thoughts are the kind of thing that many people have. I've had them. Everyone, I've, mostly, mostly everyone I've talked to has had them. Acting on it or trying planning is, is, an, is another level of sure. it, right? and, then, and then attempting it is right even right. So there's different levels to it. But I think they're common. I think we don't talk about it, and it's like it's like a ta- it's like people call talking about death a taboo, and I don't think taboo is the right word because it's not forbidden by anyone. But there is a, a fear or hesitancy around it, and I think even within that sort of like 
reluctance to, to talk about this topic. I think suicide is even to a greater degree under that umbrella. Like that it's like the topic within the topic that people don't want to talk about. So I really appreciated her, op her openness. And she was, she kind of lived up to her, her, her moniker, uh, being goddess narcissistic. She was, she was not shy. She was very flamboyant, very open. And, and just like, was like, yeah, I've had suicide thoughts and I've, you know, what I've wanted to kill myself and, but now I'm in a better place. And, but yeah, that, so that was an example, I think of someone who stuck out to me. And then I talked to a guy one time at, um, Port Authority, who he had conversations with his daughter about like how he wants to be cremated, and he wants to like he wants her to sprinkle his ashes in a blunt and have her smoke it when he's. Wow. Yeah. You've yeah. had some fascinating conversations. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah. <laughs> Has all of this experience with your project over the years given you more clarity? Yes, I would say it has. Am I fully there? I, I, I don't know if it's possible to be fully there. I don't know if it's possible, and I, and I don't think there's any way to know until I'm actually facing that moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, I feel better about it. I feel that it's something that I've been able to engage with in a much better and healthier way. And I feel doesn't need to create anxiety at a minimum. In your longer interviews and discussions with people about death, where you've had time to listen to their thoughts about it, what they think is going to happen or not happen, how they approach it. Do you find that having a philosophy about death and a way to think about it impacts the way they live? Um, I guess it depends on the flow of the conversation. I don't know if I asked that, that question explicitly, but I interviewed this one woman. She was young too. She was like 23. And she, she was very much about reading a lot about business in the business world and, and somewhat self-improvement. So, but she, was, she actually it was interesting because she spoke about the fact that I've seen this in life coaching crop up, cropping up more and more, and maybe in, 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 the, in the world of business too, of like keeping your, yeah, your death in mind as a, as a motivational force in your life. So she was able to articulate that off the cuff in the conversation and say, yeah, this is something like I do, I do think about from time to time, even though I'm very young. She's like, I don't really think about it all the time, but I do think about it. And then she had a book with her. <laughs> she had her, her journal and then she had a bucket list with her. It was fascinating. Like at 23 years old, she had this, her bucket list with her. And she's like, oh, she's like, you know, I've, I'm already starting to tick some, some stuff off the list because I'm, you know, I'm getting older and I'm thinking, wow, you're at 23 years old. You're thinking mm. that way. I, was, I was impressed by that. But I'm going back to that guy who said he wanted, to, he wanted his daughter to sprinkle his ashes in the blunt. We asked him about the idea of mortality and like, yeah, does it affect his day-to-day -day reality? Mm -hmm. he, and he said like, no, I don't, it doesn't change my behavior at all because when your number's up, your number's up. So his, his idea was like, why should it change my behavior? Uh, it's inevitable. Uh, so two really good examples. One person very young who was really living life to her fullest with the end in mind and someone else who said, yeah, I'm aware of it, but I'm still going to kind of do what I'm going to do. Do you have a question for me? How does the way you've, you think about your mortality now differ, if it does, than when you were younger? 
and especially through the prism of being a doctor and working in that in the healthcare space. When I was younger, it was not something that I thought about at all, because I was fortunate enough to live in a household with my parents and my siblings, my maternal grandmother, and I was not a kid who went to a lot of funerals. And then I'm in medical school. (laughs) And then I'm in residency doing autopsies. And then I'm practicing pathology and looking at slides. And yes, most of the time the outcomes were benign, but there were enough outcomes that were malignant. And so I couldn't help. I was not the type of person who was good at compartmentalizing my job. I was not good at that. So, of course, I would sit at the scope with that sensitivity and go, oh, my goodness, nothing is given. Oh, my goodness, this is a... 30-something-year-old woman with children who has a glioblastoma multiforme, a, um, a brain tumor, or she's got a very aggressive breast cancer. Oh my goodness, look at how breast cancer is increasing in a younger population. And then, oh, African-American women tend to get very aggressive forms of breast cancer. My own mother's a breast cancer survivor. So those things started to creep in where I thought about more my mortality on a regular basis. Mm. My stance at that point in terms of how I lived my own life, I don't think it was affected necessarily. I didn't do anything about it or change my behavior at that time. It's only in more recent years that I've become freer. I think about it a ton more that I'm not going to always be here. And so I act accordingly every day where I want to be proud of myself and do the best work that I can and also embrace my identity more than I used to. What I mean by that is walking the walk of a lifelong learner. So because I think of myself that way, that's why I do the things I do. That's why I have a stack of books constantly that won't seem to go down. They keep adding up. So much I still don't know. And so when I go to bed at night, I can be proud of. Not only did I have an idea, but I I acted upon that idea. I, mm-hmm. I furthered my mission, the good that legacy is very important to me too. I want to leave good work behind. Mm-hmm. I want to be the best wife that I can be. That's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to be the best mother that I can be and... Here's another way that's it's changed me. It's more appreciation for the relationships that matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and being able to let go of the ones that are unnecessary. Right. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, it is an incredibly, I think, powerful, motivating force uh, for 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 good. If you can, you know, if you can really look at it in an honest way. I do have one follow up question. For sure. You. What was your first autopsy like? I will never forget that. I remember walking in there with a lot of dread, like, oh my God, I've never seen a dead body before. I haven't had to deal with this before. Like I told you, as a kid, I had somehow been lucky where my my great-grandmother died in Haiti, and I was too young, and we didn't go to that funeral. Number two, am I going to get this right? I was just so stressed in medical mm-hmm. school 
So it was about like, am I going to get an A? Am I going to get this right? Am am I going to survive? So I was more in survival mode there too. So it was a mixture of things and I dreaded it. And so when I remember walking in and being assigned with my group, that wasn't even the, the bad part. The seeing the body was not even the part that was that that was a lot less jarring than I thought it would be. It was more the technical and learning and because anatomy was so hard, right. so hard. Right. So you have these mortality mantras, which I find very interesting. Would you mm. like to share one with us? Yeah, I mean, I can share both. They're both short. It's something I developed several years ago, and I say to myself every day as a reminder. So it's, uh, I will die, and I could become severely ill and or disabled. One or more of these state changes could happen or start happening right now, decades from now, or at any moment in between. So I will make the most of whatever time I have left while I'm still healthy and breathing. And then I also say, ordina al tuo destino di essere bello e tale sarà. And that's Italian for command your destiny to be beautiful and it will be. And that's something that my grandmother said to me and other family members throughout our, throughout our lives. That's one of her sayings that I actually repeated, re- repeated to her on her deathbed while she was dying. Hmm. That's beautiful. Thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that. Yeah. Thomas, what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? Being healthy means all aspects of your life. I think we're, we're very similar in, this, in the sense that we think of health comprehensively. I think most people think of health in terms of like their physical health and their mental health. Mm-hmm. And those are, are obviously very important. I think the most important thing, one of the most important things you can do is be consistent. You know, it doesn't mean you have to be stuffing your face with kale 24-7 and meditating on, on a mountaintop and, and uh, running ultra marathons every day or whatever. Like, there's a lot of different ways to be healthy. And I think you need to educate yourself and then, and then be consistent with it and like not beat yourself up if you fall off the wagon and have a few Oreos or don't get to your meditation that day or whatever it is. So... And as a man, you know, sometimes I, I defy the stereotype, sometimes I live the stereotype, you know, where being emotionally open and being connected and being okay with yourself, seeking help when, you're, when, I'm, when I'm feeling depressed or if I'm feeling down, um, that type of thing, I think men especially need to be more okay with, there needs to be more conversations. So it's something I've had to come to, you know, I've had to come to a better place too. I've had to learn a lot about about myself. I've gone to therapy over the years, a couple, once in couples therapy, once by myself, and it's extremely helpful. Thank you, thank you yeah. for that. Thank you. And now it's time for the Mindful Minute. A great big thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time in 2021 to listen and learn how to become a healthier person 
socially, emotionally, mentally, physically, intellectually, and spiritually. For the next minute, find a comfortable place to sit. Lengthen your spine. Breathe in, expanding your belly and chest. Breathe out to relax your belly and chest. Breathe in the word reflect and breathe out the word neglect. Dear wise women, thank you for growing our community. Keep using your wisdom and emotional intelligence to share this episode with someone in your social circle who will benefit from hearing it. Your grandma and your mom need yoga. Maybe you need yoga too. I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. I'm a worrier. It's a little much, I think. And yoga always calmed me down. You know, it gave me a, a positive focus. It's, everything's gonna be okay. Uh, it's just really been like a centerpiece in my life and I didn't have that until virtual yoga. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece Maya Bishop on vocals my daughter Lizzie Kelly on guitar and bass yours truly on percussion and produced by Tim Buer thanks for being here see you next time